Hey, Robert. Hey, Ron. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. It's a crazy world out there, but it's uh, but I'm doing well. And I know uh, I, I I know you experience the craziness every day. So, uh, but let's talk about something different a little bit from the banking sector. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to that, but maybe maybe with a little bit more distance. Um, so it, there's been a lot of press, and we've talked about this in in the past. But you know, Noah Smith, which is who is an economist, kind of mainstream economist, who we both follow. Uh, did, did a story the other day about this growing consensus in the United States that free trade is probably passe and, and the, the push to free trade is probably passe and, and what the consensus around the U.S. seems to be both on the left and on the right and among economists, among political advocates, is that what we need is some kind of smart um, planning, some kind of smart central planning of the economy. And we saw this a little bit already with the CHIP Act, which uh, which is, is supposed to motivate and, and incentivize and subsidize chip manufacturing in the United States. And it was a bipartisan bill, so both Republicans and Democrats voted for it. And then we also saw with the Inflation Reduction Act, which like many bills in Congress has a um, has a, a name that does not reflect anything uh, about what it actually includes. But that act uh, has a lot of trade restrictions, barriers, uh, but also a lot of subsidies all around, most of them around things like um, battery technology and uh, different climate change uh, issues. And it, the, generally, that's the trend Noah Smith tells us. That, that the world is kind of accepting the idea of managed trade, the, of, of central planning and of, of smart government officials kind of from above allocating capital and allocating resources and deciding who the winners and losers are going to be. And, and that, that that is the right thing, I think uh, Noah is saying. Um, and it's certainly the thing that every the consensus is around. Um, you know, uh, some, some economists have spoken up against this, but more on the, on the economic issue, but I really want to, instead of focusing on the economics of it, I think the economics of it kind of a settled free trade wins. <laughs> um, but I, I want to talk about the ingenuism side of this. Um, what does is, what is this push towards central planning really mean? It really mean from a, an ingenuous perspective? Well, first of all, um, people who in favor of this will never call it central planning. Uh, yes. call it industrial policy. Yes. Uh, because industrial policy is a neutral term. Uh, you know, any policy isn't your industrial policy. Complete laissez-faire would be an industrial policy. Uh, and so it, it doesn't have any of the stigma that's attached to central planning uh, because of the, you know, just enormous failures that we saw in places like the Soviet Union. I mean, that, that is completely settled. Central planning, as it has been tried in the past, has been an abject failure. So from an ingenuism standpoint, you, you have to learn from that and say, okay, we're not going to use central planning. Uh, and there is quite a bit of distance between laissez-faire and central planning, uh, but there, there's very little distinction brought when people come and advocate for some form of industrial policy that you know, at least smells like central planning. Mm -hmm. So I think that from the real benefit from looking at this through the lens of ingenuism is that we can get that distinction and we can get you know what the implications are 
for progress of taking different routes when it comes to industrial policy. And so, you know, use the word managed trade. And I think that that if you wanted to, if you were an advocate for some sort of activist industrial policy, and, but you didn't want it to be simple planning, you would call it managed economy. Uh, and any of us who have been managed, that has almost as negative a connotation as central planning, but it, it, it hasn't been tried at the scale and failed at the scale that central planning has. And so let's distinguish between having something that's that's managed and something that is is planned. Uh, you know, from an ingenuism perspective, it comes down to th that a plan is set up in advance by some centralized authority. Someone has to make the plan versus what we know works is when people are able to collaborate, share information, and then magic just emerges. And it's hard for people to, to wrap their brains around this and, and to believe in it because it does feel like magic, but we have now centuries of evidence that this is what happens, that when you put people in a, together in a room, their ingenuity flourish in a, in a room where their ingenuity can flourish, they come up with just you know, amazing things. Uh, so at one end, I would say we have a, an emergent economy or an emergent industrial policy, which is not at all planned. And at the other end, you would have something that is planned and managed could be anywhere in between. And we haven't had a lot of managers in our lives, but I'm sure that you know people who are listening have had both good and bad managers. And what's the distinction? What what makes a manager good or bad? Well, it's it's kind of where do they fall in terms of supporting emergent outcomes versus demanding planning? And so, when we look at industrial policy from an ingenuism perspective. And we just acknowledge that we're going to have a managed economy, even if it's it's very little and, and close to laissez-faire with just you know, significant rules being imposed for everyone versus a, a, man, a micromanaged economy, which is, of course, what came out of the CHIPS Act. And that's actually a good example because the initial read on the CHIPS Act was very much uh, what you would be looking for from an ingenuism perspective from a policy, which is to say, okay, here are the goals. Goals are very distinct from plan. Goals are an yep. outcome. Plan is how you're going to get there. And it looked like it was a set of goals that then would be implemented by the people who have the most knowledge and the most incentive to get it right and make it happen. And it turns out it was, it was implemented by a bunch of, of bureaucrats that have no idea what works or you know any experience or any incentive to get it right. And so that's really disappointing because if you look at just like COVID is a, a great example where you had cases where there were plans and the, the central authority came out with, this is what we're all going to do. And that was a disaster. And we had goals, which would be things like Operation Warp Speed, where the central authority said, this is what we need. Here's how we're going to support it. Let's see what makes it, you know, make it happen basically to the world. And then the vaccine emerges. It, it, that is how it always goes. And yet there's always a instinct. Somehow we're wired to have an instinct to have someone in charge, someone plan it. And it would have been almost as bad if the central authority had delegated the, the plan to say, okay, you know, pick a pharmaceutical company and say, you go out and create a vaccine. Yeah. 
Yeah. It would have happened in the same sort of planned way as opposed to setting the goal and then just letting the solution emerge. And, and you know, the amazing thing about this is if you look at chips, right? So, you know, chip, chip technology has evolved over the last 40, 50 years. And it's almost all been emergent. And, uh, you know, whether it's in the U.S. or in Taiwan or in Japan or in, or, you know, in, in, in chip manufacturing businesses in the Netherlands and other places, but it all really has emerged. And, and we've achieved Moore's Law and we've achieved these spectacular uh, successes uh, with chips without anybody at the top kind of saying, this is the mandate, this is the goal, or, or here are the winners and losers. Uh, just letting the, the market, uh, you know, work and, and these emergent, uh, emergent uh, and uh, as you said, the emergent, the properties or the, the products emerge, the, the technology emerges because the incentives are all aligned. And yet in spite of the history of how chips have, have worked, and, and there, was one, there was one attempt at kind of industrial policy in the 1980s uh, where, where the U.S. was losing market share to the Japanese, and they, they thought, oh, so the government entered, and Symantec uh, was established in order to try this. And it was, I think, uniformly agreed that it was a complete disaster, and it did nothing. It didn't do too much harm, but it certainly didn't do any good. And yet, we're doubling up on the model that didn't work, and by doing that, suppressing the model that did work, you know, or, or constraining the model that, that did work. And, yeah. and that to me is stunning every time that that is done. And it's it's the opposite of ingenuism where you're supposed to learn from failures and successes and 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 learn from what's going on around you. And instead, there seems to be this idea of imposing a model that we almost know for certain won't work. It is disappointing. And I think part of it is that that people are not distinguishing between goals and plans because people want to have some control. Uh, and the question is, how can you have and exert some control without destroying the very mechanism that makes it worth whatever it is that you're trying to control, worth trying to control? And we have you know, not just uh, many, many years of evidence, and many, many industries of evidence, and many, many countries of evidence, but we also have the theory. I mean, it's It's pretty easy to map it out to say, if you're micromanaging, if you're, you're basing on plans that are in advance, you are going to have much less progress than if you're setting goals and letting solutions emerge. And, and even in a country like China, which has never been free, uh, in the years where they were setting goals and then letting the ingenuity of a billion people go to work on those goals, they were wildly successful. And as they're moving towards plans, which is, of course, you know, and particularly people who are in power, but it's it's really everyone's natural bias or 99% of the world's natural bias, then you start losing everything that you were you were hoping to achieve anyway. And this is it's really important to say this is not necessarily a government thing. I mean, the government has its own set of bad incentives, but if you put the US chip industry and in Intel's hands, which is a little bit what the Chips Act was trying to do they're going to screw it up because they're going to plan it. You have to have it be something that is allowed to emerge out of a set of goals and support for those outcomes. Uh, and very rarely do we do that. And it's 
you know, I, I think we should acknowledge it's kind of a miracle that that's what we did with the COVID vaccine. And yeah. it was a miracle that saved millions of lives and, you know, I'd say probably trillions of dollars. Um, we could repeat it. We could repeat it in lots of areas. And that's the kind of industrial policy that I could get behind. Yeah, I mean, the only pushback that I would have is that sometimes goals are plans, right? So, because because you're choosing among many goals and somebody choosing those goals can often then orient a whole industry or a whole sector in a particular direction and might be the wrong direction. And, and so the bigger the goals in the sense, the more removed the goals are, uh, the better. You know, we want growth, we want success, we want something like that, rather than, you know, I, I, I've been reading, a, I've been reading a little bit recently about um, 5G and, and cellular technology and the, the dominance of the Chinese over it. And what's emerging right now is something that nobody kind of expected. And that is, instead of setting a goal where we have, you know, the West produces telecom equipment to, the, to compete with the Chinese, what is actually emerging is these new startups that are creating a whole new way to design and configure telecommunication equipment. So you don't have one provider, you have the antennas from this guy and the base station from this guy and something else. And they all connect, which was never the case in the past. And nobody predicted it. And if somebody would have set a goal in the West to say, we need many equipment that replaces the Chinese equipment, and it looks like the way it's always looked like, you wouldn't have got these emergent solutions coming out, uh, which nobody could have predicted. Uh, and, and of course, the risk the risk is anytime we try to set a goal for the technology in a narrow sense, well, what about all these alternative technologies that could have emerged to replace it? And that, that is the next distinction, which is the difference between good goals and bad goals. Uh, good goals are very broad, like we're going to have a vaccine for COVID. Yep. Uh, a bad goal would be we're going to have a particular type of vaccine for COVID. Even if you then open that to the entire universe of, of people who might produce it. Uh, and, you know, semiconductors is a great example because in the 80s, it was losing market share in memory chips. Mm -hmm which was, were the, the thing. And if Intel had been, you know, somehow been given the, the uh, task to have memory chips remain, you know, dominated by the United States or whatever that goal would have been, then they wouldn't have pivoted to microprocessors. Yep. And it would have been a, a loss for Intel, for the United States and for the world. Uh, and if you were managing the U.S. Uh, chip industry and you were looking ahead to what is the next type of processor that we need, you would have had Intel doing that. You would have never noticed that NVIDIA had a processing unit on a graphics card, basically, that was actually what we were going to need a decade later. So good goals are goals that don't trim the possibilities in that particular sector that don't say, okay, we're going in this direction, we're not going in that direction. And that's exactly what ingenuism is about, is having the freedom to explore and then to respond to what you learn. And that that's, of course, you know, what we, we're complaining about in terms of industrial policy is, is it doesn't seem like policymakers are responding to what we've learned over the years, but that's also the biggest thing in terms of the actual implementation of whatever policy you have. 
you know, it's not like companies have a crystal ball and they can see the future and they make the right decisions. No, they make all the wrong decisions, but they respond and turn much more quickly because they have the incentive to stop doing things that don't work or, and start doing things that do work. And if they don't, then startups have the ability to enter the market. It's a very different dynamic than when you have a set of goals where they are not allowed to evolve. And, and that's a sense in which, you know, we're not against planning, we're against the right kind of planning. And because corporations plan and businesses plan and startups plan and VCs plan all the time, but they're, but part of the plan is their, their willingness and ability to pivot. Part of the plan is their willingness and ability to fail and learn from that failure, at least if they're going to be successful. I mean, some of them don't and, and die as a consequence. Uh, but, you, you know, the, the, the more removed you get from those incentives, the incentive to survive and to profit, <laughs> Uh, and government doesn't have the incentive necessarily to survive and to profit in the same sense, in the same way, then uh, the more the more dangerous the planning becomes because the more constrained it is, the more rigid it becomes, and the less willing people are to change. But, you know, we saw government able to do that in things like the Apollo Project, and that's always given as an example. See? Planning can work, uh, you know, or, or the Manhattan Project, uh, building the atomic bomb. Uh, but those seem to be unique cases. It, it doesn't seem to be something that is easy to transport out of the dynamism of a marketplace into other contexts. Well, I would actually argue that both of those examples, although they're trotted out as examples as, uh, as plans, there actually were examples of very precise goals. Mm -hmm. uh, because there was a very precise goal, get to the moon. But Kennedy didn't manage any of the how we got there. So it really was a goal. And now it was done inside of NASA. It wasn't opened up to, to the world. Um, although at that time, NASA was basically the only you know, it was the world. Yeah. outside of the Soviet Union that could do it. So it, it, I would say that was a goal. And I'm, I'm, I'm cheating a little bit because I want it to be a goal. But if you look at what a good goal would, would constitute, it's a specific outcome supporting the whatever is necessary for that to happen and staying out of the way. And in both the Apollo Project and the Manhattan Project, that's what government did. I mean, could you imagine if the either project had been micromanaged at the bureaucratic level to the extent that the chips act as being, yep. uh, we wouldn't, yep. I mean, maybe it would have been okay if we never had atomic bombs, although only at a planet level, but it would have been, you know, a disaster for the success of those projects. So even cases where industrial policy appears to have worked, it's because, and this is true in China and in Singapore and in Korea and all the places that people trot out, it's true where it's worked in the U.S., it's because there were good goals set and there were no plans made at the centralized authority. You know, JFK did not come up with a plan for how we were going to get to the moon. Even NASA had to run it on an, ex, you know, we're going to experiment, we're going to figure it out. It ran it in an ingenuism way. And of course, we've seen that despite, you know, NASA's massive success, that SpaceX is a much better way. That when you open it up, and yep. exactly as ingenuism would predict, you get miraculous and unexpected outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it looks like NASA functions today as a much more open system 
that allows not just SpaceX, but other space companies to kind of compete and to, again, to see which technology emerges as the best one to get us back to the moon or to Mars or wherever it is we're going. And it's, it's systematic that in cases where centralized authority ends up being successful, it's when they adopt ingenuous principles, even though they're not calling it that. But that's exactly why you know air safety, where the FAA has been successful, and then when they haven't adopted ingenuous principles of connection and discovery and learning, uh, like air traffic control, they're a freaking disaster. It's the same bureaucracy. And it's extremely frustrating for us that, that there isn't a movement, a very rapid and powerful movement away from what we know hasn't worked in the past, so we know is unlikely to work in the future, to what has worked and will continue to work. Yeah, and one of, we were talking about this earlier, one of the, uh, one of the sad things that reflects this is the fact that, um, I mean, the U.S. economy today we keep expecting a recession and it's unbelievably resilient. And I think to a large extent, it's resilient because of this, uh, you know, that in spite of the regulations, in spite of the taxes, in spite of all the issues, there is a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of uh, emergent, uh, allowing emergent properties to come out in the, in the market to just, uh, you know, innovate. And, and uh, so the, the real, ingenuous properties in, in the existing U.S. market, particularly as compared to other countries. And yet, this is exactly the thing that they're trying to kill. And here we are, you know, living through a period where we're benefiting from the fact that this still exists in the U.S. economy and watching how it's, it's being chipped away at. Uh, it is, you know, when you don't learn from failure, it's very costly. Uh, and it is, I mean, we, we're fortunate, we're all fortunate to be living in this time where the level of connection is so high and getting higher with, with uh, you know, not just having access to all of the information in the, in the world, not just having, being able to find all the information in the world, but now you can actually have that information synthesized in a pretty powerful way for you. At you know the at, at your fingertips, all that information. We're incredibly well connected, and that offsets some of the you know. It's it seems like the shift. You know, I haven't done a formal accounting, but it seems like the shift has been away from the supportive environment that breeds progress. And the two of them together, well, connection keeps growing, and if the supportive environment can just stay the, the same, then you know we're going to see great things. Uh, and even if the supportive environment shrinks, at least in, in limited areas, particularly if there are areas that don't matter so much now, maybe mattered a lot in the past, then we could continue to see the kind of progress that we have seen in the last few decades. Um, but it's not, it's not a given. Um, yep. And it is, it is frustrating to see industrial policy being taken at, for granted as the way that we should be doing things without some core fundamental principles for what we will actually be willing to do inside of an industrial policy and what would be completely off limits because it is inconsistent with producing results. Well, we can continue to hope that the world will learn and policymakers and economists and uh, other intellectuals will learn. Uh, it, it, 
it's unbelievably frustrating to see them repeating the same mistakes over and over again. All right, I'm sure we'll come back to this topic uh, in the weeks to come. Uh, thanks, Robert. Thanks, Ron. Talk soon.